Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It is so good to see you today. Uh, such a, a great group of people here. I want you to know that seeing so many of you gather together for uh, worship and to hear God's word uh, taught, it greatly encourages the leaders and the staff and, and our volunteers and uh, just love being with you. And if this is your first time here, I wanna welcome you. Um, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of good churches in Greenville and the fact that you have chosen to worship with us today and check us out, we're very excited about that. We hope you find a home here. And um, by, if you have some questions, you can drop by the guest services table out in the commons or the next step table out in the commons. And uh, there'll be some friendly people there who will be able to help you with those questions. Just a heads up, uh, as we said at the beginning of the service, I want to say again now in case you were uh, late getting here. But anyway, uh, at the end of the service today, we're going to be voting uh, to approve some changes to the Constitution that we told you about a couple of weeks ago. These are uh, minor administrative language updating kinds of changes, and we'll give you some more instructions about that at the end of the service. But stick around and help us with that. Also, next Saturday here at the church from 8.30 to 12.30, we are offering an equipping class uh, entitled Sharing the Gospel Simply, and we've got guests, some guest speakers here. Um, Dr. Bill Jones, who is the past president of CIU, he's ca the chancellor now. He's the father of Lauren Densky, of the Matt Densky, Denskys. And, uh, and then we have Dr. Raphael Enzenberger. Both men have been training Christ followers to share their faith simply and effectively for years. And I guarantee if you come, you will leave better equipped to tell others about uh, Jesus as the Spirit gives you opportunity. There's going to be a light breakfast and there'll be refreshments next Saturday, 8.30 to 12.30. You can sign up on our app uh, by uh, going to upcoming events and scroll down to all events, click that, and you'll see sharing the gospel simply. You can sign up there, or you can sign up on our website under the Living on Mission tab. All right, that's housekeeping. So uh, speaking of housekeeping, I have here in my hand uh, a, a hanger. It's uh, not special about this hanger, but a hanger is designed... Uh, for specific purposes by its designer, obviously to hang clothes. We're not learning a lot here right now, but uh, um, the thing is, if you apply pressure to the hanger, because of the way that it's built, it can kinda succumb to that pressure, and it can be bent, and it can be twisted in all kinds of different ways. As you apply pressure, all of a sudden, what was once a hanger, it doesn't really look much like a hanger. It, the purpose for which the hanger was designed, after you put enough pressure on it, bend it this way, bend it that way, it can no longer function the way the designer intended for it to function. So what does this hanger have to do with us? I mean, some of you probably automatically kind of put the object lesson together. It's we're, we're like the hanger. We are like uh, the hanger. God's designed us as Christ followers to be his people and to do, to be and to do certain things as his people. And when we're gathered here, uh, like, uh, like we are today, uh, it's easy to do the things that God's uh, created us to do, like joining together in worship and prayer and hearing and responding in faith to God's word, 
uh, serving others, giving generously, enjoying fellowship and community with each other. As Christ followers, those are some of the things that God has created us and designed us to do. But as soon as we, as we leave here, then outside pressures start to pull on us. And almost right away, like right in the, in the parking lot. <laughs> and, and, and pressures start to pull on us and pressures from the world and pressures from difficult circumstances. Uh, they're pulling on us and, and, the, and things that we say and things we do, I mean, the words that come out of our mouth, they just don't fit with who God created us to be. And as soon as we leave this place, for sure, pressures start to bear down and all of a sudden uh, we can't see that we're a hanger anymore. And I'm talking about the kind of pressures you face at work when you, your boss says, hey, are all these expenses work-related? And, and you know everybody else in your office fudges here and there, and so you're kind of tempted to do the same thing. But the Bible calls that lying and stealing, and all of a sudden, you're not acting out your identity. You're not living out your identity as a follower of Jesus because you've given in to those pressures. And sometimes we watch things on our screens at home, on, on TVs and computers and our, our, uh, our, our iPads and iPhones and Androids and all that kind of, we watch things alone, things like that, that in a room like this with all of our family and friends around us, we would never watch, but we watch them privately. And again, all of a sudden, we're not doing the kind of things that God's called us to do and we'll get bent and twisted out of shape. Kind of reminds me of this uh, poem I heard recently written by Ella Wheeler Wilcox. She said, it's easy enough to be virtuous when nothing tempts you to stray, when without or within no voice of sin is luring your soul away. But that's only a negative virtue until it's tried by the fire. For the life that's worth the praises on earth is the life that resists desire or the life that resists the pressures that the world uh, puts on us that seeks to bend us. So the question is, how do we resist the pressures that come with the difficult circumstances that come into our lives, difficult circumstances that can bend us out of the shape that God created us to be? That's the question. Now we're in a ser series that we're calling Royalty, which is a study of the first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and and uh, Solomon, and uh, this spring we're looking at Saul. In the last few weeks, we've seen the rise of Israel's first king, King Saul. And really, in some ways, what we're talking about is uh, spiritual formation. About 18 months ago, uh, Jason Malone joined our staff as pastor of vision and spiritual formation. And spiritual formation simply means being formed spiritually into people who live and act like children of the king, into people who live and act like uh, faithful, dedicated followers of our savior king, Jesus, people who are becoming more and more like Jesus. That's spiritual formation. Now, unfortunately with Saul, as soon as he rises to the kingship, we also see, and we're gonna see this today, a man who is bent by the pressures of his circumstances and he becomes so bent out of shape that the Lord can't use him for his intended purpose anymore. You could say that Saul is a negative example of spiritual formation. 
So take your Bible and turn with me to uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, paper or digital. Um, and uh, we're going to start reading in chapter 13, verse 1. And, and by the way, I, I want to thank my friend Chris Dolson for his help uh, with some of the insights of this message. So I just want to give him some credit because he helped me quite a bit here. Um, so chapter 13, verse 1. <clears throat> Saul was blank years old when he began to reign, and he reigned blank and two years over Israel. So I got to push pause here for a second, because if you have uh, an English standard version of the Bible and you're reading along with me, uh, you can see that there's two blanks where numbers are supposed to go. And in the NIV and the NLT and the NASB, you'll see the numbers 30 <clears throat> and 40. And in most translations, <clears throat> there's going to be a footnote at the bottom that, bas that says, basically, we have no idea what goes in those blanks. And the, that's because the Hebrew text leaves those uh, two numbers blank. And scholars debate uh, what numbers should go there, and there are reasons that the translators of the NASB and the NLT and NIV choose the numbers 30 and 40, and I'm not going to go into that. But for sure, the most popular rendering of verse 1 is Saul was 30 years old, when he began to reign, and he reigned 42, 40 and two years. Now that might be the best translation, but the truth is we don't actually know. Uh, it, but it's not germane to the story. But what we do know is Saul is king, all right? Now that's all for free. Okay, now that you got that. Verse two, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah, of Benjamin. So let's stop uh, again for a minute and look up at the screens. <clears throat> you can see on the map here that Saul is in Michmash with 2,000 men. And you see Michmash there, uh, like almost in the center, right of center. And then uh, his son, Jonathan, grown son, Jonathan, is with 1,000 men, and they're south-southwest from Michmash. They're down in, in Gibeah. And then there's some other towns there that you'll see that come into play in the story. But, but, uh, any, but just to get oriented here, verse 3 says that Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. So Saul's in Michmash, Jonathan's in Gibeah, Geba's right in the middle of the two, and Jonathan attacks, and the Philistines hear, he, and, and, and defeats the Philistines. The Philistines hear about it, and they get angry, okay? And the, they, 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 the Philistines make their home uh, along the Mediterranean coast there, but they hear about what's happened at Geba, and they get angry, and they marshal all kinds of heavily armed foot soldiers and cavalry and chariots, and they start moving across the hill country of Bethel to Michmash, and Saul hears about it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people, and, and, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So look at the screen again. Uh, so Saul calls the people to rally with him at Gilgal, which is the spiritual headquarters. It's about as far from the coast, this side of the Jordan River, as you can and get. And uh, Gilgal, as I, as I said, is the spiritual headquarters um, for Israel at this time, not Jerusalem. Jerusalem will become the spiritual headquarters under King David later on. 
Now, by the way, did you notice the way the PR department uh, that worked for Saul put a spin on things here? I mean, who actually did the attacking? Well, Jonathan did. But the PR department spun it in a different way. And I don't want to make too big a deal about this, but I, I do think it's kind of significant. Why did Israel demand a king? Well, back in chapter 8, verse 20, the people say, we want a king to reign over us so we'll be like all the other nations, and we want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles. So why isn't Saul fighting their battle with the Philistine? Why is Jonathan leading the charge? And why did Saul take credit for the win? I'm seeing a slight bend in the hanger of Saul's character here. Verse 5, and the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of uh, Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, they started hiding themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in wells. And some of the Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people following him were trembling in fear. And he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. That's very important. But the people were scattering from him. So you got to get the scene in your mind. The enemy is camped all around, thousands of them like the sand on the seashore, these are the days of our lives, and all of these hardened soldiers, battle-hardened soldiers, he's waiting, and uh, uh, they're surrounding him, and Saul is waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and his men are hiding in rocks and caves, and he's feeling this overwhelming pressure as a leader. This huge army is coming against him, and instead of digging in, His troops are scattering. His men are deserting him, running for their lives. He feels this pressure, and he's thinking, what am I supposed to do? How am I going to deal with this? I mean, this is impossible. This is hopeless. Samuel told him to wait, so he waited day after day after day, but Samuel doesn't come, and Saul's men start deserting him. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, And he offered the burnt offering, and as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. This is the first record of a meet and greet in the Bible. I know, that was really bad. Uh, And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, and you didn't come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said... I said, the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the favor of the Lord, so I, I, I just forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue And the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. 
leaving Saul alone. And the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army, and they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the men, and he only had 600 soldiers. Now, what are you feeling right now? I mean, as you read this, many of us for the first time, this is very important. What are you, what are you feeling? I mean, honestly, what do you feel? Like, I, I mean, do you kind of feel like, what? I mean, that, that's so un, un, unfair. I mean, what did he do that was so bad that God would take the king, kingdom away from him? I mean, like, you know what, you know what I'm talking about? Are you feeling this? It's like, like this, this is so unfair. It's like playing a game and all of a sudden you get, you get to, called out because you didn't know the rules. I mean, what's happening here? This is very important as you read this story, not to stuff those feelings because the narrator wants you to have those feelings. The narrator is doing something. He's writing this story in such a way that he, he, he's like, he's, he's tilting the game in the direction of Saul for the reader so that at first reading, we feel sorry for Saul. It's like, and, and we're like, is, is this God's unfair. This is, what's going on? I mean, what, what, what rule did he break that was so bad? I mean, it seems like God is overacting here. I mean, he does one thing wrong, but he, he does offer a sacrifice, right? I mean, you know, it's like, come on, God, give this guy a break. He's trying to do the right thing. He's offering a sacrifice. But God says, I'm taking away the kingdom from you and your descendants forever. He's like, is this the kind of God we serve? A petty, overreacting God? Listen, as, as you're reading the narrative, the story, you need to understand that the stories, stories are designed to create tension in the reader. And that's exactly what's happening here. Now, this is just a part of the story of Saul. The story begins before this and it goes on for a long time after this. And in the very beginning of Saul's life, as he makes these decisions, bad decisions, unwise decisions, it's almost, it almost seems like, well, maybe, maybe he does have a reasonable excuse for his actions. But a couple of weeks ago, when Saul was chosen by Lot to be king, where, Saul was nowhere to be found. The people are looking, they've just, just, uh, he's just become king and he can't, they can't find him. Where is he? Well, he was hiding in the baggage, whatever that means. And what's that about? Like, we, well, you know, whatever. Not a big deal. Mm, something's off. Something's just a bit, a bit off. And then, and then here, why is Jonathan leading the charge in battle? Why isn't it Saul leading the charge? And then why does he take credit? Mm, something's just a little bit off. And as we continue to read the story of Saul, we see that the character flaws that God is pointing out here at the beginning of the story become huge character flaws at the end of the story. Saul is an absolute mess. I mean, by the end of the story, he's running around, he's trying to kill David, and he does it over and over again. He's a mess, and the reader starts to think by the end of the story, hmm, Maybe God knew something after all. Maybe God can be trusted. That's what the storyteller, that's what Yahweh, God, that's what he wants us to see. So what's his sin? What did he do wrong? 
Well, according to the text, verse 13, Samuel says, you acted foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you, and that's a big deal. And the word command, just in case you miss it, the, command, the word command shows up four times in verses 13 and 14, three times specifically addressing Saul. So what command did the Lord give him? Well, you look back at verse eight, Saul remained at Gilgal. The troops were trembling with fear. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. I said when I read that before, that was important, and it is. So let's go back to chapter 10, verse 8. We read, that, read this a couple of weeks ago. Samuel says to Saul, Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Now, this is a command from Samuel, and Samuel is the prophet of God. He speaks for God, so what Samuel says is what the Lord says. And this is the way that Yahweh has structured his relationship with the king. This is the line of authority. Yeah, on the screen. The line of authority is Yahweh and then Samuel who speaks God's word to Saul and then there's, there's Saul. But Saul has it the other way around. And in Saul's mind, it looks like this. Saul is big and then there's Samuel and then there's God. From Saul's perspective, he feels this tremendous pressure, this huge army uh, of the Philistines has come against him. He's waited and waited and waited, and Samuel hasn't come like he said he would. Now, I personally believe that Samuel did come like he said he would. He just came late on the seventh day, and, but Saul got impatient, and Saul figured that Samuel wasn't coming, and Saul reasoned, I gotta do something, and he takes matters into his own hands. Saul is a man with a better plan. He has heard God's command, but under pressure, he doesn't completely obey God. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks back, you may remember that Samuel outlined the duties of kingship for Saul and the people uh, after, Paul, after Saul was chosen by Lot. And we said then that undoubtedly, Samuel went back to Deuteronomy 17, where Moses gave specific directions as to the rights and the duties of the king, and he does it in detail. And part of, part of Yahweh's instructions for the king was that he would humble himself and immerse himself in God's instruction so that, Deuteronomy 17, 19, and 20, he would carefully obey all the words of God's instructions and that he would not turn aside from God's commandments to the left or the right so that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom of Israel. As I said, the word command shows up three times in reference to Saul in 1 Samuel 13, but Saul was not careful to obey all of God's instructions given to him through Samuel the prophet. He succumbed to the pressure and he turned left to his own reasoning and the legacy of kingship was taken away from him. In the NIV application commentary, Bill Arnold writes this 
On the surface of the narrative, Saul's offense is a failure to wait for Samuel's arrival before consecrating the, the battle. But more generally, this is tantamount to disobeying Yahweh's instructions as given through Samuel, which in turn exposes Saul's larger problem. He fails to accept the structure of authority established for him by Yahweh and his prophet Samuel at the time of his appointment as king. This unfortunately is a pattern that will be repeated in chapter 15. Even though that said, some of us read something like that and we look at it and we say, but oh my goodness, it's just a small little thing. I mean, he, he, he waits and he waits and he makes an offering and then Samuel shows up. I mean, he just, Saul just missed it by a minute. He's just like one degree off. It just seems so terribly unfair. It's, it's, it's still disobedience. And sometimes just being off one or two degrees, being off course one or two degrees can make a huge difference over the course of a lifetime. In life, where we end up can be significantly altered by a small decision, a slight directional change now. Let's take the one degree thing for an example. If you start walking straight toward a target one mile away, but you turn one degree to the left or the right at the beginning, you'll miss that target by 92 feet. If you were to fly to the moon and altered your course by one degree, you would miss the moon by 4,200 miles, which is, which is the diameter of the moon, which is twice the distance from Greenville to L.A., Airplane pilots talk, uh, they actually talk about the one degree rule and the one uh, degree rule states that for each degree a plane veers off course, it will miss its destination by one mile for every 60 miles it flies. That means if you're flying from San Diego, California to Hawaii, you would miss the island by 42 miles due to being off course just one degree. Off by one degree can make a huge difference. And it's the same in our lives. One little directional change, one little seemingly reasonable to us decision today could alter where you end up in life. Like let's, decide, let's say that you decide to cheat somebody or you cheat and lie to someone or you lie in your taxes or you mislead or manipulate someone or you try some substance you shouldn't mess with or you begin flirting with a relationship that's out of bounds for you. Uh, the list could go on, right? I mean, uh, it, the point is a small decision today can change the entire course of your life and you end up somewhere you never thought you would go. In fact, in life, it's usually not the big decisions that get us off track. It's the accumulation of the combination of little decisions that seem so small when, the, when we're making them that they, those things are so small they couldn't possibly alter the course of our life. Now, if you think that, think again and think of Saul because it's, it's, it's those little reasonable to us directional changes that we make that can result in this big shift in our lives where we end up in our lives. And I heard a guy say one time, uh, whatever you compromise to keep, you will eventually lose. Whatever you compromise to keep, you'll eventually lose. I, I think he's right. If you compromise your integrity now, 
that one, that little one degree turn in your direction, that could affect your children and your grandchildren and possibly your whole future. And that's exactly what we see in Saul's story. Saul kind of obeys, but not really. And he ends up losing everything. And what the narrator's trying to do in these stories is to help us see a recurring character flaw in Saul. He's a man with a better plan. And God is saying to Israel, you wanted a king like everybody else? You wanted a king like you? Well, you got him. Saul is just like you. He does what's right in his own eyes. He does what seems best to him. And it's like Yahweh is saying, watch this guy. He's a man with a better plan. He's off just one or two degrees it's not going to end well. Now, the stories of Saul, I think, help us as followers of Jesus to see how sin works. We see what you might call the anatomy of sin. For example, first of all, we feel pressure. We feel some kind of pressure bearing down on us. We feel a kind of tyranny of the urgent to decide or to do something that we think is the answer to the problem we're facing, or maybe it's some temptation we face, or maybe it's something that we think will bring something good into our life, but it's out of line with what God tells us to do. And all of a sudden we feel this pressure and we feel pressure from the world and pressure from the, the culture and pressure from our family and friends or pressure from the people we work with, pressure from difficult circumstances, all kinds of pressure. And when we feel that pressure and it hangs around, it's unrelieved, what happens is all of a sudden we start reasoning. Second thing is we reason that what God says may not be that important. What God says may not be that important, so we reason that maybe God's way isn't the best way. We tell ourselves that really it's no big deal not to do what God says to do. And, and we, we, we're overcome by pressure. We start to reason that maybe we don't have to do what God wants us to do. And again, <clears throat> it's pressure from our culture, pressure from our wants and desires, pressure from difficult circumstances that gets us reasoning toward what seems right to us. And that starts to bend us out of the shape in which God created us and designed us into conformity with the world. And then third, we compromise our values and identity. We compromise our identity, who we, really, who, who we really are as a child of the king, what we should really be about as a child of the king, who we are created to be. You know, God created us to be a, a, a hanger, but the pressure of, of circumstances presses down on us and we start reasoning that maybe it's just not a big deal to do what we think is best. And we let something or someone other than God shape our identity. God chose Saul to be the king. He was anointed by Samuel. It was clear to him that he would be the one that, to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And they had victory over their enemies all around. But Saul loses that vision of his God-given identity. He turns the authority structure upside down Oh, I mean, God's still in there, of course, but he's at the bottom. Saul is big, God is small. And Saul's like, maybe there's a way I can have God's favor and God's help, but still do what's best for me. 
Do you ever find yourself ignoring what God has said but asking him for his help? You ever find yourself ignoring what God has said but asking him for his, his help? Are you doing that now? In some area of your life, have you reasoned your way into compromising what you know that God says is right in order to get what you want, but at the same time, you're asking God for his help? If so, Saul is your, is your new BFF. And here we see the first clearly visible sign that this one degree off course moment in Saul's life, this, this is the visible beginning of his demise as Israel's king. What seemed like just one degree off in chapter 13 will take Saul miles away from what God had wanted for Saul. It's very, very sad. But it's even sadder because what happens is in this anatomy of sin is we, cut, we feel the pressure, we start faulty reasoning, we compromise our values and our identity, and then we make excuses and shift the blame. Like in chapter 13, uh, verse 11, Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul says, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and, that, and the, that you didn't come within the days appointed and the Philistines had assembled at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines are gonna come down against me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the favor of the Lord. See it, he's ignoring God, but he's seeking his favor. He, and, but, but, but what's happened here is Saul's caught. He was overcome by the pressures of his circumstances. He reasons his way into compromise, and then he makes excuses and blames it all on Samuel. I forced myself. I, I felt compelled. By what? By what? By, 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 you felt compelled by what? To disobey God? You felt compelled to disobey Yahweh because of what? Well, I, I felt compelled to disobey because my, my circumstances seemed so hopeless. Now, it's true for sure that difficult, unwanted circumstances can bring pressure into our lives and we feel helpless in those, in those times. But is helpless the same thing as hopeless? Well, no, not if God's in charge. In fact, it's when we cry out for help in our helplessness that God shows up. Helpless is not hopeless. Not if God is your king. But for Saul, he's like, well, yeah, I know that Yahweh created the world, and yeah, he miraculously delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, and yes, he delivered Israel time and again with the help of people like Othniel and Deborah and Samson and all these others. But he convinces himself. But this is different. It's much worse. Not true, but this is how he's reasoning. This is much worse, so I had to take matters into my own hands and do what seemed best to me. Verse 12, and I offered the burnt offering, and Samuel said, you've done foolishly. You've, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. So rather than admit his sin, rather than to take responsibility for his actions, Saul reasons his way into compromising God's clear instructions, and when he's caught, he makes excuses, he blames Samuel, and he reasons his way into believing that his plan was the only plan that made sense. That's the anatomy of sin. 
pressure, faulty reasoning, compromise, excuse making, and blame shifting. And it's a pattern that will be repeated. What he should have said to Samuel is, you're right. I messed up. I was wrong. I was wrong. And then kept his mouth shut and took whatever consequences like a godly leader should. But I don't think the consequences would have been the same. Because look, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. But as we are being formed by the Spirit, he expects us to respond in ways that are honoring to him. Especially when we get caught. And when we get caught, we don't, we don't make excuses. We don't shift the blame to others. We don't try to negotiate. But Saul doesn't learn this lesson. And really what we see here, again, is nothing compared to what we're going to see when we get to chapter 15 and then on to the tragic end of Saul's story. Saul never really learns to own his sin, never owns his failures, and it will literally drive him insane by the end of his life. So what do we learn about spiritual formation from this chapter of the life of Saul? Well, I think we can learn something about language. I think we can learn something about language. Because when the pressures come down on us and when we're squeezed by the world to be in a shape different from what God created us to be, I think there's something about language that comes into play. We have in that moment a, a choice of the language that we will speak. We can either speak the language of pride or we can speak the language of humility. When Saul was under pressure, he chose the language of pride. Verse 11, I, 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 you, you, you didn't do so I. That's the language of pride. It's about me, it's about me defending myself, it's about me defending my decision, it's about me defending what I had to do. I was forced to do it because of what you did or didn't do. Any, any married people here know what I'm talking about? How many arguments have you found yourself in? And really, probably both of you were at fault in some way, but you absolutely refuse to own your own sin. You absolutely refuse to own your own sin. Insisting is, it's what you did that forced me to do this. I mean, well, I wouldn't have said that ugly thing to you if you hadn't have said that ugly thing to me. It's what I had to do since you were, weren't doing what you said you were do. That's all, right? Hey, look, Samuel, I'm not wrong here. I'm not wrong. You were late, so this is all your fault. That's the language of pride. Because you see, when we're big, then sin is like, uh, it's just a little thing, you know? Just a little thing. When we're big, a sin like this is no big deal. Come on, God, give me a break. I had to disobey you. I didn't have any other choice but to disobey. That's the language of pride. But when the pressure's on and we cave under the pressure, there's a second option, and that is we can respond with the language of humility. Humility admits wrong. Humility doesn't make excuses. Humility looks at my own sin and not the sins of others. Humility doesn't negotiate who was more right and who was more wrong. Humility doesn't look at the sins of others and respond in harsh, unkind, unloving ways. 
A humble person accepts the consequences caused by wrongs done in pride and rests in God's promise of forgiveness and grace. In the passage Jason taught on last week, Samuel's uh, farewell speech from chapter 12, when Samuel rebukes the people for demanding a king like all the other nations, when he confronts them with their sin and God confirms the words of Samuel by sending an unexpected terrifying thunderstorm, the people repent and they humble themselves before the Lord and Samuel. Here's what they say, chapter 12, verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for a king. See, that's an admission of guilt. That's taking responsibility for their sin. That's repentance, verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, don't be afraid. If you sin and you mess up, don't be afraid. He says, you have done this evil, yet don't turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and don't turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they're empty. What does he mean by empty? Empty things are things that we reason will give us more life and more enjoyment than we can find in God. Empty things are things we embrace that rob us of our true identity of sons and daughters of the king and bend us out of shape. Now listen to verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. That's identity, a God-given identity. He doesn't reject you when you sin and mess up. You come to him with the language of humility and repentance and confession And he said, and only fear the Lord your God and serve him faithfully and consider what the great things he has done for you. Consider the great things he has done for you. That is grace. You're not cast aside. You're not cast out. And we're going to see later on that that was true in King David's life. He owned his sin. Saul never owns his sin. When we blow it, when we mess up, when we do what's right in our own eyes rather than God's eyes, what does God want to hear? He wants to hear the language of humility. And when he hears humble repentance, we experience his pouring out of his grace and forgiveness in full in present tense. Not something just happened way back when we became a Christian. We experience his grace and forgiveness present tense. Again, a couple of weeks back, I talked about the duties of the king in Deuteronomy 17, which I read part of it again a moment ago. You remember what the posture of the king was? The posture of the king is humbly kneeling before God, humbly kneeling with with a heart that is in complete submission to the word of God. The king was to be subject to God the king. And so what Saul could have done was to get on his knees and, and get off by himself, and he's like, God, what do you want me to do? God, I'm struggling to obey here. The pressure, the temptation seems so overwhelming. The way before me is not clear. Show me the way that I, I, I should go. Give me the strength to say no to all the voices in my head and everybody, all the men that are saying this and that, and God, anchor me in your word. See, that, that's, that's the posture of a Christian. That's the pa- posture of a Christ follower. John Wesley said, indeed, there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. There's no little sin because there's no little God to sin against. So how, so how do we become like this? How, how can we be 
be formed like this? Well, I think it depends on what we value. What we value most. Our values determine who we listen to and what we watch and how we live. And only biblically informed values can save us from giving our lives to empty things. But it's more than just obeying commands and rules for a Christian. We live on, 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 living on this side of the cross. It's more personal to us than that because Jesus makes all this personal to us. For consider what great things God has done for us in Christ, which raises questions like, do we value Jesus above all else? Do we value what Jesus did for us above everything else? Do we value how Jesus says life is to be lived in this broken world more than the things that the world offers us? Do we value Jesus enough to listen intently to his words above anyone else's words, including the words we tell ourselves in our own minds? There's a story that's told about a, a, a farmer who visited in Chicago, and he was walking down the streets of Chicago. He had a friend there that he knew, this Chicago one, and they're walking down the streets together, and it's a busy, noisy street. Cars are honking. People, you know, scream at each other like, like, like they, they do up north, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, all, all kinds of that. It's really noisy, you know, and, and, and he's... he's Chicago and is walking with his friend and his friend stops and says, I hear a cricket. And the guy from Chicago looks at him and says, what? This is downtown Chicago. Listen to all the street noises coming here. Like you couldn't possibly hear a cricket and all this noise. So the farmer goes over to this big concrete planter. There's a big tree in the planter and there's all kinds of leaves that uh, around the top of the planter in the soil. And the farmer just starts picking around in the soil and he, he, he pulls out a cricket. And the Chicago one is like, whoa, that's unbelievable. You, 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 ha you gotta have the greatest ears in the world. And the farmer said, no, my ears are just like your ears. But I'm from the country and I love the country and I love the sound of crickets at night. They, they remind me of the home I grew up in. My ears are the same as yours, he said. And he, Farmer reaches into his pocket and pulls out a handful of change and he throws it on the, on the ground and those coins clatter on the concrete and a bunch of heads go, look right over there. What we value determines what we hear. What we value determines what we do and how we think. Saul valued the thoughts of his own mind over God's word and the pressures of the world twisted him and he became a king that God couldn't use. So how do we resist the pressures that come with difficult circumstances? Only by valuing what God says above what we say to ourselves. Only by valuing what God says above ourselves, or let me put it this way, this is my big idea. The pressures of our circumstances can bend us out of the shape God has designed us to be unless we value God's word above the self-justifying words we tell ourselves, words that make disobeying God seem reasonable.
The pressures of our circumstances can bend us out of the shape that God has designed us to be unless we value God's word above the self-justifying words we tell ourselves, words that make disobeying God seem reasonable. Final question. What are you telling yourself that makes ignoring what God says reasonable? What are you telling yourself that makes what God says seem reasonable? Pray with me. Father, we live in a world where there's so many pressures trying to bend us out of shape, so many things that push and pull and and twist against our hearts. And it's hard, it's difficult, it's challenging to be obedient to you in all things. Because when we're here with family and friends, it's one thing to talk about you and to pray to you and read your word and sing praises when we're gathered together. But when we're away from this place, it's hard. And the pressures of life sometimes feel overwhelming, sometimes makes us feel helpless and hopeless. And we're tempted to take matters into our own hands rather than leave them in your hands. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to be grounded in your word, that we would value your word above all else, that we would value the gospel above all of things, and that we would be people who speak the language of humility and repentance when we mess up. And Jesus, we pray all these things for the sake of your name and your rep reputation. And all God's people said, amen. amen.